Well, uh, we, we have spent the last couple of weeks in our study of the Gospel of Mark uh, talking about suffering, everybody's favorite topic, <laughs> seemingly bad news. Uh, first, Jesus said to his disciples, I, I know that you think you know what the Messiah came to do. You have no idea. Now that you know that I am the Messiah, that I'm the Christ, let me tell you what I, in fact, must do. I must go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the religious leadership, suffer many things, be killed, and raised again the third day. I know that seems like bad news. It's, it's not. It's called the gospel. That word means good news. <laughs> the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ is how the Lamb of God uh, will take away the sin of the world. Not only that, he went a bit further. I have some more seemingly bad news. Not only have I come to bear a cross, I've also come to bring you a cross. Anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And, and while that sounds like bad news, I want to remind you that by losing your life, you find it. Because there must be a cross before a crown, suffering before glory, sacrifice before reward, giving before gaining, losing before winning. It's why the author of Hebrews wrote of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The same is true for you. Bad news. You, you, might, you might could use some good news. And, and so Jesus says, I, I want you to understand something. My cross-bearing, your cross-bearing is not the end of the story. There is something more to come. Enduring the cross, despising its shame. Brings us to our text um, today. Read it with me. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 and following say this. And Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And then a cloud formed, overshadowing, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him all at once. They looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. I know, I know that what I have been saying sounds like I've only given you bad news, but I want you to understand it is not the final chapter. Here's some, here's some good news. I think you're going to like it. It forms our outline. First, in, in the end of chapter 8, which, which actually... You notice chapter 9, verse 1, it says, and he was saying to them, it's a bad chapter division, those, those go together, and he was saying to them, in addition to suffering, you need to understand something else. You need to understand that 
I'll be coming. Jesus is coming in glory. And then in verses 2 and following, we get a glimpse of Jesus coming in, in glory. The end of the story is incredibly good news, which is why we are able, you see, to lose our lives. We looked briefly at verse 38 last time. We saw that when Jesus comes back, He will come in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And that's going to be quite a bit different, you see, from His first coming. We may not know how it is all going to unfold, but I want you to understand something this morning. Jesus is coming back. It does not matter how you see the book of Revelation, whether you see it as allegory or or symbolism or something that was historical or something that is yet future, whether it will be pre-mill or post-mill or on-mill or whether it will be pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or no-trib, one truth is undeniable and non-negotiable, something upon which we can all agree Jesus is coming back, the best is yet to come. You see, there, there, there were two comings. His first coming took everybody by surprise. They, they, didn't, they didn't think that he would come like he did, undercover, if you will, veiled in human flesh as the son of man. Jesus gives a stark contrast between his first coming and his second coming in verse, in, in verse 38 that goes with this. Uh, the son of man, that's speaking of his first coming. Son of man refers to his humanity. He came in the form of a servant in appearance as a man inside a, a human cloak. The son of man will come, now that's speaking of His second coming, in the glory of His Father. This time it will not be in humble appearance uh, of a servant. He will come rather with the holy angels in magnificent display of glory and power and strength. Now, that's all old news to us. That, we understand that. We even fight about it. But, but, but this would have been startling to the disciples, this is the first time in the Gospels that he has told them about, a, about another coming, totally foreign to them. They expected the Messiah to come in great glory the first time. And then now he's just told them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going I'm to be handed over. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What about all the glory that we've been expecting that's coming? Maybe you need to hear that this morning. That's coming, but not this time. It'll happen when I come back. Two comings, two appearances. They weren't ready for that. But again, understand that the way that he's coming will be completely different than the first time. Think of that first coming. He came as a baby, not very impressive, and his Birth was a rather inauspicious beginning, born to a working class couple from, a, of all places, Nazareth, and not Athens, not Rome, not Alexandria, not even Jerusalem, and not born to an emperor, not to a king, not a Herod, not a tetrarch, not even to a the Pharisee or a Sadducee, but to a but to a carpenter and his virgin wife, a, a Galilean in a barn. No less. Not very majestic. Not very kingly. He grew up in relative obscurity. No official training. No theological or rabbinic schools. Not even any political or military training that we know of. We're not even sure if he knew what a sword was, let alone how to use it. The only instruments of his trade, a saw, a hammer, maybe an awl, and a chisel. 
no scepter for this guy. When he came, there was nothing particularly outstanding or astonishing about his looks that would draw us to him. <laughs> Isaiah 53 says, for he grew up before him, like, that's God, but like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor, uh, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I used to read that and think, Jesus must have been rather homely. Basically, all that it means is that there was nothing in his appearance that would cause us to say, now that's got to be God. That's got to be the Messiah. All those paintings, all those pictures you see of the Anglo guy with the really long flowing hair and the white robe and the blue sash and the halo, probably not. When he entered his public ministry, there were no armies following, no marching bands, no herald to announce his arrival. His inauguration, if you will, was not being anointed with oil, but baptism in, a, in the Jordan River. And, and no one even knew who he was except the baptizer. True, the, the voice of the Father was heard from heaven and the Spirit of God was seen descending on him in the form of a, of a dove, but no one seemed to really notice. For the next three and a half years, he, he, he attracted a little bit of a following, I guess, but it wasn't a political or military leaders. They were only mildly interested, intrigued by the tricks. Uh, he, it wasn't the religious people who claimed to know God. <laughs> they opposed him. It was the common everyday riffraff of society, fishermen, tax collectors, worse than that. It was the broken people, lepers, paralytics, lame, blind, deaf, crippled, deaf, demon-possessed, dead people. Quite a following. Now, there was, there, there was nothing special in, the, in his appearance at his first coming. In fact, Isaiah goes on to say, because of the way that he came, men despised him. They rejected him. He was a man familiar with sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we esteemed him not. And somehow, we think that's not for us. But listen, there is a second coming that will be completely different than the first, and it will make um, all of our suffering worth it. That's why this text is here. He, he will not come veiled, hidden, undercover in human flesh. He will appear in his Father's glory with all of the majesty, strength, power, honor, and, and glory, and might that you would expect of divine kingship, uh, which was actually there all, all the time. But this time it will be seen, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Everyone's going to know it. Everyone is going to confess it, because He is going to shine like the sun. In John chapter 17, right before His crucifixion, Jesus prayed in what we call the high priestly prayer. Father, I, I, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world ever was. Before coming to earth, Jesus was most glorious. That is, there was a brilliant, magnificent display of who he was. But he laid all of that aside. To come the first time. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself. That is, he laid aside the, 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 the glorious display of his attributes. He blanketed his glorified de deity in human flesh, the greatest undercover mission of all time. 
But there is coming a day, make no mistake about it, when he will come in great glory, not as the Son of Man, but as the Son of God with great glory and the holy angels. Mark 13 describes it for us. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. In fact, the very stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in heavens will will be shaken. You say, wow, no sun, no moon, no stars. It's going to be dark. No, it won't. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then He will send forth the angels and will gather together His elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heaven. He's coming in greatest glory, no veil of human flesh, at least peeled back at this point. Every eye will see Him, every knee will bow to the glory of the Father. They will not have a choice, and if they don't love the light, the light will consume them. The angels will come with them because they have a job to do, to gather the elect. That's you. That's me. From the four corners of the earth. And it will not matter if we are dead or alive. It will not matter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Everyone jokes about that being the Baptist. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. He is coming in great glory, and we will be gathered together with Him in the air. John gives a further description of this second coming of great glory in Revelation chapter 19. Just let these words wash over you. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Does this sound a little different than the first coming? His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Then he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with the robe robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine uh, linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he uh, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This time his coming, he will not be using a hammer, he will not be using a saw, or an all. He has a sword, and it becomes readily apparent that he knows how to use it. Make no mistake about it, he he is coming a second time, and it will be in greatest glory. And so, while the disciples were lamenting seemingly bad news, maybe over the past few weeks while you've been lamenting bad news, not liking what you've heard, I mean, his coming death... They're coming crosses, perhaps death. Not understanding it, Jesus says, I'm coming back. And while the promise of His return was meant to encourage them and us, it may seem very remote, 2,000 years now and very future. Sometimes, like the disciples, we may get a bit overwhelmed. The disciples, after all, still had to face His cross, their crosses, We've got to go to Jerusalem. There's going to be rejection, pain, maybe even death. And, and so Jesus, while they struggled with this first coming, sought to encourage them and, frankly, us. 
with a picture of a second coming. Not only am I coming back, let me give you a glimpse of my return, which brings us to our second point. Look at verse 1 with me again of chapter one, true, uh, chapter 9. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What in the world does that mean? Some have suggested, well, since Jesus didn't come back in the lifetime of the disciples, he was just a big liar. <laughs> not true. Some think it refers to the transfiguration which follows, which I think does, but that's only part of it. It's the beginning. You see, the word kingdom speaks of kingdom reign or the the kingdom rule and authority of God. In this context, it includes this idea of royal majesty and and regal splendor. I believe that Jesus is saying, you're going to see my kingdom. That is, you, you will see me and my royal majesty, my regal splendor come before you die. And they did. Yes, it begins with the transfiguration, which we'll look at in just a moment. But it continued through the glorious resurrection, uh, through the ascension, through the founding of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit, through the spread of the church down to the present day in kingdom power and kingdom authority. He is building his church. Yes, it's been 2,000 years. And look at what he has done. He is manifesting his kingdom reign, his regal splendor, just like he said he would do. And even we are privileged to see the glory of the Son of God as he is building his church. But it does start with this rather enigmatic story of the transfiguration, which he gives to the disciples to give a little glimpse. Yes, I know it sounds like a lot of bad news over the past few verses. So let me give you a little encouragement as you bask in the glory of the Son of God. This is not the end of the story. Let this picture uh, encourage the church through the ages until I peel back my flesh at the second coming. You see, three significant things uh, that, that point to the glory of the sun in this particular passage. We see the transfiguration itself, and we, we see the testimony of these two saints, and then we see the testimony of the Father as he has to correct Peter. Surprise, surprise. I'm not sure, sure exactly where this very high mountain was, although many attempts have been made to identify it. There is a traditional site, Mount Tabor, uh, which tour guides there. If you give them a few shekels, we'll be happy to uh, take you to it. It's likely not there. It's way too far south in Galilee and not particularly a high mountain. Besides, as I understand it, there was a Roman garrison stationed on top. So, so Jesus, we read, took Peter, James, and John to a high mountain, probably just guessing Mount Hermon, since they were in Caesarea Philippi, rises 9,000 feet high. These three, Peter, James, and John, known as the inner circle, those who seemed to be closest to him, and, and what they saw would impact them forever. It's supposed to. It's supposed to impact you. Jesus was transfigured, you see. The word is metamorpho, from which we get our word metamorphosis. The, the, the word suggests a, a change of nature that is not always, but usually uh, outwardly visible. He transformed, metamorphosed before them, and it was outwardly visible. His clothes became radiant, exceedingly white, like nobody can bleach them. Mark wants us to understand that this is a supernatural event. Matthew tells us further that his face shone like the sun. 
<laughs> we remember that when Moses came face to face with God on a mountain, his face uh, shone with the reflection of the glory of God. He had to wear a veil when he came off the mountain so he wouldn't scare the people. Here, I want you to understand that Jesus is not reflecting glory. This is his glory. He himself was transfigured. Jesus is peeling back the cover. He was giving them and, frankly, us a glimpse of the glory that is yet to come. You see, God's glory seems, as we read through the Scripture, seems to have this visible manifestation of light. You need to understand something. I've explained this to you before, but, but, but the Scripture tells us that God is invisible. And yet, when we see any display of God, it is a display of His Shekinah glory, we call it. The light of His glory that represents the very presence of God. God paraded His glory before Moses, as I mentioned, in Exodus 33. And when He came down from His mountaintop experience, His face shone with the glory of God. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory, descended on the tabernacle in Exodus 40. It descended on the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, such that the priests were not able to stand and minister. They were transfixed because of the glory of God. We moved to the New Testament, and at His birth, while the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night, the glory of the Lord shone about them, and it was as bright as the noonday sun. Later, when Saul of Tarsus was on the way to Damascus, the glory of the Lord appeared to him and knocked him off his horse. It blinded him because it was brighter again than the noonday sun. The glory of the Lord is most brilliant, bright light. It dispels all darkness, which causes John to write, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus was giving his disciples an encouraging, visible expression of His glory, and it appears as white, bright light that even transformed His clothes. Why? (laughs) Because He had just given them a boatload of news that they did not expect. They'd been following this guy. This is the Messiah. They expected Him to come in great glory. They did not expect Him to come veiled in human flesh as a servant. They didn't expect Him to suffer. They didn't expect Him to die. They thought if they followed the Messiah, it would be glory for For them, is it at this time that you'll set up the kingdom? That's what they wanted to know. And they certainly didn't understand if they chose to follow, it would be suffering, self-denial, and the cross. For them. So having enlightened them as to what the Messiah came to do, he enlightens them further, both figuratively and literally. While it is true that Christ will suffer and die and be raised again the third day, while it is true that you may suffer, even die a martyr's death, listen to me, I'm talking to you. Jesus is still the glorious Messiah. Yes, it is true. His power and majesty and deity at this time was hidden in flesh. But in order that you may know that he is coming in great glory, here he says, let me give you a little picture. Let me give you a a glimpse of the kingdom in its fullness. And while it has been 2,000 years and while we may face trials and opposition, while we may even face death, while there is rising hostility even in our own country, and while the coming elections is Well, foreboding, to say the least, be encouraged. Jesus is coming back in great glory. (laughs) He will make all things right. 
we will behold him. We will see him reigning in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. We're supposed, we are supposed, you see, to hold this picture with everything that we've got. You have to understand that this vision, when I use the word vision, I don't mean it didn't happen. It happened. What, what they saw, this picture, if you will, is for us today. Jesus tells them in verse 9, we didn't read that. We'll save that for next time. He says, don't tell anyone about this until after the resurrection, but then tell them. Tell them in the midst of their cross-bearing so they can be encouraged. This is great news. Verse 4, we see the glory of the Son and the testimony of these these two saints, Moses and Elijah, they appeared to talk with Jesus. This was for the benefit of the disciples, and it's actually for the benefit of Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us what they talked about. Luke does. They came to encourage him regarding the news that he had just shared with his disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die. But why these two? Why Moses and Elijah? Lots and lots of discussion about that. Some say it's because they both had mountaintop experiences with God. Uh, some say it's because they are two of the most predominant Old Testament figures. Some say that both of their deaths, or homegoing, if you will, were different. I'm not sure. Some suggest, I think there's some merit in this one, that Moses is the embodiment of the Old Testament law. After all, the law came through him. He was the one who went up to the mountaintop to get it. He likes hanging out around there. He's the one who brought the tablets of stone back down. He is the one who taught the law to the Israelites. He was the great lawgiver. We even call it what? The law of Moses. Elijah was viewed as one of the greatest of the prophets. He had, after all, the school of the prophets. He trained other prophets. He faced down Ahab and Jezebel. He was translated into heaven in a chariot of fire. He never died. He was a, he was a prophet hero, you see, in Israel. The point is, these two men together represented the entire Old Testament economy. All of the Old Testament, uh, uh, the, all that the Old Testament had to offer, the law and the prophets, that's seen in these two guys. They came as a testimony. I want you to understand that the disciples, that the law um, points to and was fulfilled by Jesus. All of the prophecies point to and were fulfilled by Jesus. This is the one. Their presence gives testimony to the fact that Jesus was indeed the awaited Messiah. Of course, as you would expect, Peter <coughs> missed it. Which brings us to the third evidence of the glory of the Son, the testimony of the Father, verses 5 to 8. Peter blew it again. That's shocking. <laughs> he sees this thing unfold, and as he normally does, he just starts talking. <laughs> I mean, get the picture. This is an incredibly, I mean, this is an unbelievable uh, event. It should have left most people speechless, not Peter. He's one of those guys who engages mouth before the brain ever catches up. He's not comfortable, you see, without talking, even though what he says is way off the mark. Some say just plain stupid. The event is too big for words, but he has to talk anyway. In fact, Luke tells us he didn't even know what he was saying. <laughs> Rabbi, it's good for us to have been here. If, you, if you'll let me, I, I'll build... <laughs> I'll build three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is really cool. Maybe we can just camp out here a while. Some suggest the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booze was going on at this particular time, which is why Peter perhaps suggested this. The uh, Feast of Tabernacles was the time that the Israelites built small tents, camped out for a week to commemorate the exodus from 
when they were delivered from Egypt. So Peter might have been saying, hey, let me build three tabernacles. Let's enjoy summer camp. Mountaintop experience. Then what do we want, right? We're going to live on the top of the mountain. Peter had a good heart. He just missed the whole point of the object lesson. So while Peter was still speaking, the Shekinah glory of God in the form of a bright cloud enveloped them, and the voice of the Father said, now this is not in your, in, in the, in your text, but it's in the Greek, Peter, shut up. This is my beloved, it's not really in the Greek, this is my, this, this is my beloved son, Matthew, as with whom I am well pleased, listen to him, Shh, Peter, stop talking for just a second, and listen, not to Moses, not, not to Elijah, they were only a shadow of the reality to come, they were not transfigured, that is, their flesh did not concealed deity. Their flesh was not peeled back. There is only one Son, and I am pleased with Him. Everything He is doing, going to do, uh, going to Jerusalem, suffering, dying, rising from the dead, it's all according to plan. Shut up and listen to Him. Do you ever need to hear that? Sometimes you're so busy talking, you can't hear. It's not in my notes. Let me tell you a little story few, several years ago, uh, my wife and I uh, were facing a particularly difficult time in our, our family. We were okay, but it was within our family. I mean, particularly difficult. And uh, my wife was quite upset, and in, in fact, uh, angry. And she, uh, it was, she, her faith was not shattered, but she began talking to God about this issue rather loudly, angrily. We've given our life. How could you let this happen? And this went on for several weeks. Later out. One Sunday morning, Muriel Sambo, I don't know how many of you know Muriel Sambo, but if there's any woman I have ever known that has the gift of prophecy, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, whatever you want to call that's Muriel Sambo. She came up to my wife one Sunday morning put her hands on my wife's cheeks and said, honey girl, that's what, that's what she calls her. Honey girl, I need you to listen. In the middle of the night last night, God woke me up and he, he told me to tell you something. Now, I don't, she's very apologetic. I don't know if this is for you and if this is not for you, then, then you just forget that I said it. But God wants me to tell you to be quiet and listen. My wife just, she just crumbled in a heap. That's exactly what she needed to hear. She needed to shut up. Don't tell her I said that. <laughs> and I know you will. You guys are so bad. <laughs> she needed to be quiet and listen to her father. And she, at that moment, was restored. You need that? You need to just be quiet and trust. This moment, Matthew tells us that Peter, James, and John fell down to the ground. They were terrified. 
It's the only response you can have when coming face to face with the glory of God. The priests, remember, couldn't move in the temple. The shepherds were terribly frightened in their fields by night. Paul fell off his horse. John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, listen to these words, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest was a golden sash. Oh, there it is. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze. And when he had when it had been made to glow in furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining, uh, or, or was like the sun shining in its strength. Does that sound familiar? No flesh veiling that. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hallelujah. When presented with the glory and holiness of God, men, women who are overcome with the divine presence, Peter, James, and John on this mount fell to their faces, Matthew tells us, and he also says that Jesus then touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid, and looking around, they saw no one except Jesus. You see, a vision of the glory of God should cause everything else to pale in comparison. Moses and Elijah, gone. Only Jesus. So at the beginning, this event changed the lives of these disciples forever. While Jesus was transfigured, they were transformed. Years later, they wrote about it. James didn't. He, didn't. he was martyred early on. But John wrote about this event in his first gospel. It didn't take him long to mention it. Chapter 1, verse 14, most agree that it's talking about this. And the Word became flesh, wrapped in human covering, and dwelt among us. And we saw, we saw His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In addition to the miracles, teaching, death, resurrection, ascension, John is talking about the transfiguration. Peter is a little bit more clear. We, while he didn't know what to make of it when it happened, he figured it out later because in his second epistle he writes these words, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses, we saw it, of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from, the fa- from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, and He quotes Matthew, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. They heard it. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This event changed their lives forever. And it is actually recorded to change ours. You see, Jesus did go to Jerusalem. He did suffer. He did die. He did rise again the third day. And he is coming back in great glory. The glory of His Father with the holy angels. Until then, we are to look to this event when He peeled back His flesh, as it were, as evidence of and encouragement for His coming in glory. Jesus is coming again. And when He does, I want to be clear about this, we will see Jesus and Jesus alone because everything else will pale in significance. Let's stand for prayer.